in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. It seems like uh, the, the way the dice were rolled between daylight savings and people like thinking that they're too tired even for an evening service, uh, coronavirus, and then the, the uh, beautiful weather, uh, we, we've... Where it's a sparse day, so I really appreciate you guys turning up and showing up today. Uh, yeah, thank you for being here. Um, so in the very first sermon I ever preached in this building, uh, we, we hadn't even launched as a church yet. It was, I think, December 2nd of 2018. It was either our first or our second preview service. Um, for those of you that were on the launch team then, you might remember, actually, maybe I'll call on you and have you repeat the story that I told that day. No, I'm just kidding. But as I tell it, you might remember a bit of the story, but probably at least half of you weren't a part of the launch team at that point. Point. So I'm going to retell a story that I told at that sermon, and it's almost ironic how it's become relevant again. So I spoke of a plague that hit in ancient Rome, and it was far worse than anything we've seen since the Middle Ages. I mean, magnitudes worse than the coronavirus. People became terribly sick. They coughed blood. They bled internally. A lot of their, their skin and their fingers turned black from hemorrhaging. Uh, they had severe diarrhea, which caused incredible dehydration. Uh, many of them became so weak that they weren't able to get, they weren't even able to get out of bed to get food or water. And a lot of them died, not, at, not so much from the plague, but from the overall uh, dehydration, weakness, kind of mixed with this plague, that they, they couldn't even feed themselves or care for themselves. So this uh, was inflicted upon Rome, the largest city in the world at the time. They had a million people, and 5,000 were dying every day. And over the, the course of 10 years, fully one-third of the city died. And so I compared that to the Twin Cities. Um, you know, if one-third of the Twin Cities were to die, just to give you a, a sense of the scope, it'd be 1.3 million people. Again, this was magnitudes worse than the coronavirus. Uh, people didn't understand germ theory back then in Rome, they, but they understood in, in sort of their understanding of the world, they understood that if you were near someone who was sick, that you would likely get sick too. So parents, I mean, this is incredible. People started to avoid others like the plague. You know, parents would isolate themselves from their own children, uh, grown children from their aging parents, brothers from brothers, sisters from sisters. It was terrible. Um, and back then, there was really no charity. So a, a lot of, you know, the, the notion of hospitals and orphanages and care, a lot of that came in with Christianity. And even as we've moved on to be a mostly post-Christian society in a lot of ways, that spirit of caring for the sick, caring for the weak has remained in our society. But that wasn't there yet in Rome. It came with on the wings of Christianity. And so in a system where no one believes in eternal life, when, when, when everyone's just a pagan, um, you, you tend to hoard the years that you have, right? If, if you don't believe in eternal life, you just you, you try to live as long as possible and make these, these years as rich or long as possible. So what happened in Rome was the top 5 or 10% of the society of society all fled the city. You had the priests, doctors, anyone who was kind of at the top all got out of town because they didn't want to be around sick people. But there was this small religious group in Rome that never fled. Even the wealthy ones among them didn't leave. Instead, this group kind of came together, they pooled their resources, sold their land, and then they took in the sick into their very own homes. Uh, not many were doctors, but they were able to provide basic care, you know, food, water, bandaging the sores, cleaning up any sort of mess or blood that uh, came from these people. Uh, historians try to figure out if it was the bubonic plague or uh, what's the other one, the Black Death, some of these other things that, that they might have suffered from, but we don't know for sure. And the, the world started to look on at this small sect like, wow, this is, this is incredible what this group is doing for Rome. And uh, what's sad is, of course, a number of these these, you know, the small religious group did die along the way, 
in helping the others, but not nearly as many as the other Romans, whose family wasn't even associating with them you know, to avoid the plague. And it's because this little group cared not only for one another, but they, they were caring for others. And if most people were dying just of dehydration and things like that, uh, a lot of them were able to live because they were cared for. Um, again, if they had you know, access to water and food, they weren't dying of, of starvation. And then something really cool happened after that, is that you guys might know that if you get a virus once, um, for most intents and purposes, you're, you're essentially not going to get it again. You're, you're almost immune to it. And so you had all this group of people that were helping others with the plague, and then after they all got it, and the ones that lived, they couldn't get it again. Most of them weren't getting it again. So they were going into the, the worst places in Rome. They were going right into like the plague slums, and they were going in and getting the sick. They were taking the corpses that were just piling up in the street and properly burying them. And the world looked on like, this is crazy. Like, these guys are like miracle workers. Like they can't, they're not, like nothing's touching them. It's amazing what's happening. And so they, you know, they, they were asking like, why, why are you guys doing this? Why freely by your own choice are you selling your land and giving all your money and your, you know, your health to do this? And the reason they stayed, the reason that they did this is that their hope was not in this world. So this group, they called them the Nazarenes at the time, but we call them Christians, but they were just this little sect at the time. Of course, now it's the largest faith in the world. But they stayed because their hope was not in this world. It was not in Rome. It was not in getting rich or living long. Their hope was in Jesus. And that's why they did this work. And so whenever the the sick asked them to give an account for why in the world they were doing it, they would tell of their Savior who had done the same for them. They would talk about Jesus who would touch the leprous with his bare hands, who uh, he washed the feet, you know, the lowliest bondservant. And they stayed because they truly believed that this life was only a tiny sliver of the eternity that they were about to share with a loving God. And they thought, well, what better way to meet him than in showing mercy and loving their neighbor? You know, if we perish, we perish, but if we do, then we go to be with God. Uh, They said, like their teacher Paul, who died in their own city, they said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if we live, we live to serve Christ and to to love those he told us to love, uh, but to die is to then go be with him. So there's really no loss, which is an incredible mindset of faith. You know, I wouldn't recommend you live like that necessarily right now. You've got to put some context to it, but uh, what, a, what an amazing example. So when the, the plague finally ran its course, all the wealthy and the noble people started to come from across the Mediterranean. They started to sail back, and they thought, well, you know, back to business as usual. But when they came back, they found that the city had changed and that those who lived through it largely lived through it because that little group of Nazarenes had kept them alive. And so uh, people in mass stopped going to pagan temples because it's like, well, what good are those priests? Like, they didn't stick around to help us. They got out of town and, and sailed to Carthage or wherever, uh, but these Christians stayed and helped us. And so all of a sudden, all of these pagan temples just emptied out, and they turned them into Christian churches and cathedrals and basilicas. You know, they're like, you know, half of my family is alive because of this Nazarene group, and they know something, and I want to know what they know. I want that. Um, So within about, um, within a century or so, Rome would become majority Christian. So they had a thousand years of being pagan, and then just in one or two generations of plague, they converted to become a majority Christian. So they went from throwing Christians to lions for paid entertainment to then having and sharing the same hope that the Christians had all along, largely because of the love that they showed during these two plagues. One was in around 150 years after the birth of Christ, and the other was about, I think, 250 or 280 
if I remember right. So I was so moved by this story. And for those of you, anyone remember this story from when? Yeah, you guys remember it? Okay, thank you. That's, that's encouraging. Uh, it's a good story, right? Um, and it's, it's true. So I was so moved by it. If you want to read the full history on it, um, where, I, where I'm getting my research from is in Rodney Stark. He's a sociologist, and he wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity. It's a great book. Um, he's sort of the first person that put sociology and the history of the church together. And it, it doesn't sound interesting, but it will blow your mind if you read the book. Uh, okay, so... I, went, I was moved by this story, and I used this as, a, as sort of a, a tee-up to a sermon, but that was in this sort of beautiful, beautiful like, hypothetical land of 2018. Now, this, you know, the coronavirus, COVID-19, it's certainly nowhere near, not even close to that kind of devastating. But at the same point, it is a pandemic in that it's spreading worldwide, you know, affecting millions of people, or it will, uh, and it is significantly more... Um, fatal than the flu. And so it's in the same category, although it's much less serious than, say, whatever plague Rome was dealing with. But I, me- I remember making this point a year and a half ago and almost feeling a little silly because I, I didn't want to play the hypothetical too much and like talk ourselves up too much. But I did say, if another plague like this, a year and a half ago, I was saying, if another plague like this ever were to arrive here, I would want our church to be more like the early Christians and not like those who maybe skip town and hide out in a bunker and try to get three years of food and they've got guns and they're like, like almost watching with like popcorn and wanting to see if society falls apart, you know? Um, and I literally took this paragraph from that sermon. I went back in my notes and just took it. Uh, and it was funny because then it was so hypothetical. Like I would want our church to be the kind of church that would mimic you know, the early church in that way. But I was kind of under that snug, that smug global optimism uh, that, you know, we have basic hygiene now, so this really can't happen anymore. I remember thinking, like, the Spanish flu was like the last hurrah, and now because people wash their hands with soap, we'll never have this happen again. Uh, that was what I legitimately thought, uh, and I'd been told that it wasn't like I made that up. And I just find it a strange irony that 100 years after the Spanish flu, we have something that's not all that different, uh, though, though less serious. Um, so it may not be the virus itself that a lot of people in our demographics here represented are so concerned about. Um, and we've got a, p- a panel coming up in a bit, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, but I wanted to mention that this is something for every person alive to consider, and that what makes our system that we live in so productive is just how little waste happens in our society. So we have an incredibly global market and global supply chain. And what that means is, let's say you have a 1,000 pieces all moving together in a great harmony. You might be able to knock three or four of those pieces out. But if you knock 40 or 50 out, the whole machine can kind of shudder. And so what's, uh, what's interesting to see is that we have this global system that works so productively, right? You can flourish so much when the entire world all focuses its top skills and resources at the same thing. Uh, but sometimes that can then create a bigger fall if, if things start to go wrong. Um, a, good, a good example is, just think of this. So I, 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 when I went to write the sermon today, I thought, I want to really encourage people and help people be optimistic through all of this. And then as I was writing, I thought, maybe the, the better task for me is to humbly, not either be too naive and optimistic and not be too negative, but actually humbly maybe prepare people and help tee up what we may face, or you know, we might not, but what we may face in the future. But I want to mention, do you guys remember the Dust Bowl? Did you guys ever hear about this, the Dust Bowl in the 1930s? So it would be fantastical to be able to predict that that would happen. But 
So in the late 1920s, you had a stock market crash. And a lot of the people that were affected later by the Dust Bowl didn't even know what the stock market was. It's out in New York City, a bunch of Yanks, a bunch of city guys trade money or something, and they didn't know how it worked. Uh, but the stock market crashed. And then what happened is, and they had no idea like, how the stock market worked, but it intimately affected them later. Because even though they're not in a hyper-modern market like we are now, they still were very connected. And so because largely of the, the stock market crash and a number of other factors, the price of wheat fell so low that it became uh, like an inverse of, uh, what's the, of profitable. Like you lose money just to grow it. Like it wasn't even worth growing. So here they'd plowed all their fields and they were ready to grow wheat. And then they decided not to grow wheat. They're just going to let their fields take a rest for a couple of years until everything recovers. And then what they couldn't foresee, and we can't blame them for this, was that there were incredible droughts and high winds all across the 1930s. And so they put no crop, they put no seed in the ground, and then this crazy heat and wind came, and it literally blew away all of the topsoil in major parts of the country. Like, like millions of metric tons worth of soil just got blown east. So they actually had no soil. Like they couldn't grow anything. So here some stock market crashed, and four years later, all of the soil across great parts of Oklahoma and Colorado and you know, Texas is just gone. And so like this land that you spent 20, 30, 40 years paying off now is worth essentially zero. It's a rock, and you can't grow anything on it, or it's clay. So then you had thousands of people that couldn't make a living doing the only thing that they knew how, and they all started moving west. And that would sound crazy when the stock market crashed to be like, you know what? All of the soil in Oklahoma is just going to blow away, and everyone's going to be homeless and move to California. Like, that would be absolutely crazy, right? But those things are intimately connected. So in the same way, we have no idea what may or may not happen because of say, 1% or 2% of, of our society getting severely sick. But the same kinds of unpredictable things may happen. So it's just good to be ready. It's good to be humble and to know that there are things that if a few dominoes fall, a thousand dominoes later that you can't predict, something might change. You know, all, the, all the soil in Oklahoma won't blow away again, probably. But strange things like that could happen. Um, so in, in that way, I want us to be ready. This, this is shaping up to be not just a defining story of the year, but if it keeps going as it is, it might be a defining story of the decade. So as much as we appreciate them, our hope is not in interconnected systems, but our hope is in Jesus, and we want to be Jesus to the world in the midst of this. And in order to do that, I think we need to be educated, we need to know what we're at least going up against. So to that end, I've asked some of the medical professionals in our church. I realize about, I think about 10% of our church is made up of medical professionals, so I couldn't even have everyone up. Uh, but we have three of our medical professionals that are going to be making up a panel today. So I'll start inviting you guys up, and I'll intro you just a bit. Uh, so we have Josiah Allen here in the front. It's going to be coming up. He is a genomics researcher and a pharmacy student at the U of M. My wife, Aubrey, any of you know, I guess you guys all probably know all these guys. But yeah, she is an RN um, and in graduate school for nurse midwifery. And then Dave Hagland is an MD. Here, I'll move this out of the way. Dave Hagland is a doctor, MD. And I wanted to invite them up because they know a lot more about medicine than I do. If you want to grab that mic, I can uh, start this. So, um, all right. So I have, I have questions here, but we're just going to loosely sort of converse through some of this so we can know yeah, what we're up against. Glad to have you guys here. <laughs> um, all right, so in general, I mean, just tell us, about, tell us about the coronavirus. You know, what's the big deal? What does it do to the body? So feel free to, we're just, we have the one mic, so. So it's a virus that causes coughing, fever, and often shortness of breath. And so it can be very severe, and people might need to be in the hospital. It can be life-threatening. 
most of the people who have died from this are over 50. Um, so that's the basic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was going to say, who's most at risk? Like, who else might be at risk for this? In general, people who have respiratory conditions. Um, so people with asthma, for instance, or uh, lung deformities. Um, and there's not a lot of uh, expertise yet because this is so new, so we don't have statistics to say this small category of people is higher risk and, and so forth. So just a general statement. So for instance, um, small children that, um, for instance, maybe preemies that have bronchopulmonary dysplasia, um, they're more susceptible to lung infection, so that might be more of a problem. But um, children that don't have lung problems, not so much of a risk. Okay. I have this, for some reason I wrote Josiah next to this, and I'm not sure why now, but uh, you, you take a crack at the answer. Uh, will I get the virus? How likely is it for each of us here asking, will I get COVID-19 in the next year? What are the chances that we get it? Um, so, I mean, we're, what we're seeing right now is that the infection rate, so there's, there's a value that epidemiologists use, uh, which is like an R value. Uh, and basically what that says is uh, the number of people um, that each person who gets sick will, will go on to infect. And right now that number for, for COVID-19 is about 2.2. Um, so each person who is getting sick is infecting roughly 2.2, on average 2.2 people. Uh, and so until that number goes down to less than one, uh, then we're, we're going to continue to see the, the infection spread. So um, epidemiologists, you know, it's one of those things we're not 100% sure how, how quickly this is going to spread and how, how broadly it's going to spread, um, but there's going to be a good chunk of people who are, who are likely to be infected. Now, for 80 to 90% of the population, this is going to be relatively mild. Um, it's going to be you know, a moderate cold or a moderate flu level of, of sickness, but for these folks that, that are at higher risk, that's, that's the concern. Um, coronavirus, it's a whole family of viruses. Uh, we're, we're just kind of talking about the coronavirus, mm. uh, but it's a whole family of viruses we've all probably had a coronavirus infection at one point in time in our lives. It's a common thing. It often just presents as the common cold. Um, there's been more severe ones like SARS uh, back in 2002, 2003, and MERS, which was Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which was in, I think, 2006, 2007. Is that right? Do you remember MERS? Do you remember? Okay. Um, those, were, those were a bit more severe. So, so SARS was like, uh, I think the, the mortality rate for that one was around 6 to 8% and MERS was even higher, it was in the, the 15 to 20s, I think. Um, but the, the difference, I think, between this and, and these other ones is that because it's a lot more mild, um, people are, and I'm sure you guys have heard this in the news, people are, are, are not sick, not feeling as sick, or, or just feeling like they have a cold, and so they're going out and they're spreading the, the condition around. Um, so, so that's, I think, the, the big difference between this and um, previous more severe coronaviruses that we've seen. Okay. Um. Man, this is, I could, I could stay here all night and ask these questions. Uh, so, Aubrey, I have one for you here. Um, so, I know a lot of people here are probably thinking, all right, so I'm young, I don't have any respiratory issues, you know, why should I care? And I remember you said on the phone call about, you know, maybe not just thinking about the self, but I wanted to hear what you said about that again. Um, yeah, so even if, you know, you're not at a high risk to be transmitting it or to be, you know, really sick from the virus, we just want to be considerate about other people. Um, yeah, like, you know, we've touched on here, um, younger, healthier people might not have really severe symptoms, but you can pass it on to people who could be at a higher risk to have um, severe complications. Um, so just, you know, being cognizant of 
who you're around, who your kids are around, and who you could be spreading it to. Um, and then do you want me to jump on like hand washing, that kind of stuff? Sure, yeah, go, go wherever you, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then just, you know, basic hygiene type stuff with um, like what we know with all sorts of other disease spreading is um, just covering your sneezes with your elbow so you're not you know, transmitting it with your hands, um, washing your hands really well before you eat, after you, you know, touch your nose, not touching your face as much as possible. Um, just being cognizant of those types of things are going to um, just limit the spread. Hmm. Oh, thanks. Um, so I don't want to be, I don't want to think, I don't want to get too, uh, what's the word here, like hypothetical, but uh, Josiah, we were talking like a week ago about some of the Maybe some of those dust bowl effects that we can't know, but we can we can probably predict some uh, in terms of you, you mentioned pharmaceutical supply lines, you know, cargo ships, things like that. I'd love to hear you just instruct Capital City. I think there's there is some attitude in the news amongst like 20, 30, 40, something's like, well, I probably won't get sick. If I do, I'll probably be fine. So it's okay. But there's a lot more that will be affected by this. And so I'd love to hear you just pontificate a bit on the yeah. Sure. Yeah, so I, I think that to, the toilet paper supply lines are going to be okay. So if, you, if you're running out to Costco, um, I, I, I don't think there's going to be a problem there. Yeah. Uh, one thing that we are concerned about, though, is, uh, is the pharmaceutical supply lines. Uh, so in the pharmacy world, this is something that we're watching pretty closely right now. Um, the FDA has already uh, identified at least one medication that is almost exclusively produced in China. Um, and because of the, um, and actually the, the province, Wuhan, the city of Wuhan is in uh, a province where uh, a ton of pharmaceutical manufacturing is in. Uh, and, and those, um, and those uh, you know, industrial plants there supply a lot of the sort of basic raw ingredients for a lot of different pharmaceuticals um, and, and really are one of the global producers of sort of raw ingredients for medication. So there is a, there is a concern that um, you know, as, as that manufacturing slows down because people aren't, uh, aren't working or because uh, the ships are being quarantined and things like that, uh, that there could be a reduction in supply lines for pharmaceuticals. Like I said, so the FDA has identified at least one medication currently that it says is at risk. They haven't, they've chosen not to identify that particular medication um, and, and let us know which one it is. They said, oh, it's on our list of like 150 or so that, you know, we are kind of keeping an eye on. And you could go and see which 150 those are, but they're not saying which one of those is specifically related to coronavirus. Um, they have said, though, that it's not one of that's like sort of a mission critical medication. Uh, however, uh, something like 80 to 90% of all antibiotic medications um, are sourced, at least in, in part, uh, in China. Uh, so, so there is a that that's one area that we're going to watch closely is antibiotics and also asthma inhalers uh, are another area that um, that you know, of medication that gets produced uh, pretty pretty heavily in China and so those are a couple areas that we're watching pretty closely in the pharmacy world. Okay. Uh, while you have the mic, I, I have another one here. Uh, so I was encouraged when we were on the phone the other day. You talked about you know what reasons do we have to be optimistic and some of the comparisons to SARS and whatnot genetic. Uh, what's the word code and stuff? Listen, why don't yeah. you tell us about them? So it's it's pretty amazing. So on the on the genetic side, it's pretty cool. So when um, when SARS hit, it took us about six months to a year to sequence the genome of the SARS virus. And so when you sequence that genome, now you kind of know the structure of that virus, you know how it works, and then you can start to build drugs and build vaccines against that particular virus. So it took us six months to a year to figure that out for uh, for SARS. Uh, the first outbreak of coronavirus that we saw was in late December. Uh, in J January 30th, the sequence was published in Lancet. 
journal. Uh, so less than a month, or just about a month, we had the sequence completely, completely characterized and available around the world for researchers to work on. So this is a, a you know, the, the increase in technology and, and the, the ability for us to sequence uh, the genomes of these viruses and stuff like that is just so, just tremendously fast now um, that, that, that really gives us a lot of hope that we're gonna be able to sort of crack this thing a lot faster uh, and come up with new drugs, new vaccines for this at a far faster rate than we ever would have before. Cool, uh, that's, that's encouraging. Um, so Dave, uh, back to you if you wanna pass the mic here. Um, what should we be on the lookout for? I haven't actually heard much about symptoms in the press. I just hear about numbers and rates. What should we be on the lookout for, you know, for if we have the virus, at what point should we go in or choose to not go in, you know, to the hospital or to our doctor? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay. There are a few thoughts about that. Um, so just a little preamble. My wife, Carol, was hoping to be here today. She has a cough, and she said, nope, I'm not going to go and spread my germs around, so I'll disappointed though she is she said I'm gonna be respectful about that idea so mm. um, when we're sick with a cough we don't know which virus is causing it um, if things are mild usually we can stay home and get over it um, that's fine mm -hmm. um, there could be influenza there could be a dozen other viruses there could be the coronavirus or COVID-19 if a person is known to have had exposure to someone who has had COVID-19, you'd be more suspicious and say, you know, I need to get this checked out um, so we can try to stop this. Um, if a person is having severe symptoms, if, for instance, you're just feeling short of breath, that, okay, I'm walking across the room and I'm tired, um, I'm breathing heavily, uh, or going up a flight of stairs, um, that would be a sign you need to get checked out, whatever illness it is that you have. Um, if you're feeling dizzy, if you're feeling uh, lightheaded, um, chest pain, any of those kinds of things, you'd want to go get this checked out. Gotcha. Yeah, that yeah no, it's, it's great. Um, while you have the mic, so if we're asked to stay home, so there's people that have symptoms might be quarantined, but maybe the rest of us, they might just say in order to slow the spread, they might just ask us to sort of, I don't know what the word is, kind of isolate ourselves or not go out too much. Uh, what recommendations do you have for people if it's going to be two, four, six weeks of not too much, I don't know, activity? I guess anyone can answer this question, but yeah. Yeah, so at this point, things are not widespread. There was one person in Minnesota diagnosed with COVID-19 on Friday. Um, they had been sick. They were on a cruise ship that had COVID-19, got sick, uh, eventually went to the doctor and immediately things were tested and they're found to have that. So they'll be in quarantine for probably three weeks or more, even though they're feeling better. Um, people that are not known to have COVID-19, but you're sick with something, it's good to just stay home and not spread whatever it is that you have to other people. Um, there would be a teeny tiny chance that it could be COVID-19 that is in the community and no one knows who has it yet. Um, so for those few people that maybe have it, then it will slow the spread to other people. Um, all the other viruses, it will reduce the spread of those viruses too. Gotcha. Uh, Aubrey, a question for you. I don't know if you, you might have addressed this before and you can pass it on. I know you, you addressed some basic hygiene things. Uh, what can we do in general to keep our immune system strong? And stop me if you already answered this, but 
given, I, I've seen some numbers, I know Josiah answered some of these, that I've seen some epidemiologists guess 20, and some guess all the way up to 60 or 70% of us will get this virus within a year or so. So I'm thinking, well, how do I just stay, you know, my, keep my immune system strong for that? I'd just love to hear. Yeah, so just uh, basic recommendations as far as getting really good sleep, at least eight hours of sleep a night, um, healthy diet, exercise, low stress as much as possible. Cool. Um, here, why don't you keep? Why don't you keep the mic? Uh, let's see here. I, I'm not sure if you if you have an answer for this, but um, what do you think? What is your opinion on what may happen here? I could see either you or Josiah answering this, but you keep the mic. Um, what do you think may happen here in Minnesota in terms of, you know, schools being open, people working from home versus going into the office, given what we see in Japan and Italy? Do you think people should be ready to stay at home for four weeks, you know, and... Um, I guess I'm not a huge visionary, um, okay. but if you look at Italy and Japan, they are, you know, recommending they are they have closed their schools. So it is a possibility, though I don't know how likely that is. Um, so I guess you know it wouldn't be the worst thing to you know start pondering what that would look like for you um, if it's a possibility to work from home, um, or if you know schools are canceled, what that would look like for childcare. Um, yeah. Netflix has a 30-day free, uh, <laughs> yeah, free trial. Funny, so. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, so, Josiah, what can people do to prepare? What can people do to prepare well in terms of just being ready, you know, with food or medication, whatever they might need, in case we're asked to chill out for a month? So, um, so I'll, I'll take the pharmacy side first. Um, so on the pharmacy side, you know, like I said, there is a concern, you know, that we might we might run out of some drugs. Uh, the good news is is that probably 90% of drugs on the market have some drug that's similar to that, that's in a, sort of the same class that we'd be able to switch you to. Um, and maybe that means that you have to go to a twice a day dosing instead of a daily dosing. But for 90% of us, probably higher than that, uh, we're all going to be just fine on the drug side. Um, so I, I think, you know, keeping your normal prescriptions, you know, I don't, there's no need to go stockpile drugs or anything at this point in time. Um, uh, on, on sort of the food side, I think, you know, the, the standard recommendations right now is, is, I think, keeping two to four weeks of food uh, in your house. That's not two to four extra weeks of food. That's two to four weeks of food. So I'm guessing a lot of us, if we were to clean out our cupboards, probably have at least two weeks, if not more, of food in our in our cupboards right now. Um, so so maybe go buy if you know if you're going to the store and buying some beans, maybe buy one extra, but don't buy the whole shelf. Don't be like that lady and dumping everything in your cart. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, let's see here. Um, so Aubrey, back to you, and then I think we'll 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 head toward the, the end here. So. As, as if, if we're asked to stay home, I think a lot of people are seeing that as just bad news or stress or, you know, cabin fever. But what can we do from an overall care and health angle? If we're asked to stay home, what can we do to prepare, say, as families or with your roommates or whoever? If we're going to be at home, mostly not leaving the house for three, four, five, six weeks, like in some parts of Italy they're asking for now, uh, what can we do to make that the most positive, healthy experience? Um, yeah, I suppose just coming at it from a positive angle and um, taking advantage of the time to um, connect with the people around you and um, 
I think a good thing, especially for people who have maybe a little bit of older kids, just to be aware that, you know, the kids are talking about this in schools as well, and they're aware of this, um, and just to be educating those around us, um, to not be fearful and, um, you know, we, like we have talked about before, um, just doing what we can to prevent the spread so that we can, you know, keep those around us healthy who are at a higher risk. Um, you know, some other things that we've talked about is just, you know, taking advantage of the time um, with those around us to just, um, I don't know, enjoy the time and grow closer, try to have a positive angle on it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, last question for Dave, and then we'll uh, give them each a chance to sort of you know, preach or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so Dave, you had said, I can't even find it in my notes. Um, you were mentioning ways. So we, we want to be, though we don't want to be like going into every you know, like sick bed and like touching everyone, you know, like the early Christians were. We do want to serve as a church, especially if, if those calls are made in a month or two where the city says we need help. We want to be able to jump in. And you had mentioned on the phone um, ways that you expect volunteer service might be required, like for elderly people who are stuck at home or whatnot. Could you yeah, tell us more about what you foresee being ways for us to serve possibly in the future? Yeah, so there could be people that are self-quarantining because they're sick and they don't know what it is, um, and so they're staying home for whatever length of time. Um, there could be the people that have COVID-19 and have to be in quarantine for three weeks or more, and so if they are running short on supplies, they either need to be able to order that delivered if they have the funds to do that um, or have a family member, a friend, neighbor, or maybe someone like us from a church to be able to step in and deliver something to their doorstep. Um, don't necessarily have to be having face-to-face -face contact, but you can be on the phone and say, okay, put it on your doorstep and then you can watch them uh, go to the door and bring it in. So delivering some uh, items to them would yeah. be one way to do that. All right. And then another thing would be um, if we're in a position of being an employer um, to have policies that fit with allowing people to stay at home when they're sick. Um, some employers have very strict policies and you have to have a note from the doctor and the doctors are going to be busy and they can't write a note for everyone who has a respiratory illness and so maybe relax on that. Um, if there's attendance policies that you can't miss more than this many days per year, or you lose your job, maybe you need to relax on that so that people can actually follow the guidelines that are given. Good, good. Um, in, in a second, I'll give you guys a chance to say, like, as a medical professional, what, you know, spiritually, theologically, biblically would you like to tell the church? But I wanted to say, any other thoughts before we, before we move on to that? I don't want to miss anything or if I forgot something from our phone call. Do you guys remember some of the other things you talked about? No? Cool. In that case, I know at least that Josiah and Dave have something to share. I'm not sure if Aubrey does. She does. Okay, yeah. So all of you, I'd love for you each just to take take the time you need, and we'd love to hear. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess just uh, with thinking about this, a verse came to mind for me. Um, uh, Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Um, so I just think in times like this, it's good to be prepared, but it's also good to um, just give God our anxious thoughts and let his peace cover us. Thanks. So I'm thinking of Psalm 91. I'm going to read some of the verses in here. Um, I guess two things that I want to encourage us. Um, don't be fearful. Don't be foolish. Um, so two different things. Um, 
So starting from verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. So that's talking about um, weapons of violence. Um, so some people might be afraid that um, someone in a gang or a drug dealer or a terrorist might have weapons and kill us in our city right in broad daylight. Um, people could be fearful about that, and we don't need to be. Uh, pestilence is infection. Um, people could be fearful about this virus that's going around. Um, skip to verse 9 here. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Um, so God is able to protect us from these things that happen. Um, not a guarantee that every Christian will be spared from illness or death, but God does protect us from things oftentimes that we're unaware of. Um, car accidents that didn't occur and we weren't even aware that there was a danger going on. Um, germs that were near us that we weren't even aware that were there, but God protected us. Just a little bit more here. Um, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And that actually is something that Satan quoted to Jesus when he was tempting him. Uh, we find that in Luke 4. And Jesus said, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus did not jump off the temple and say, God, you have to save me now because you promised. Um, God did not promise to save every human being from ever dying. Um, we do die. Um, but God can protect us, and if God is calling us to be involved in something that has some risk to it, then we need to follow what God is saying. If we have the idea on our own and God's not calling us to it, and we rush in where angels fear to tread, God is not obligated to save us from our foolishness. So we need to be listening to God and asking him for wisdom. Lord, what do you want me to do? Yeah, oh, thanks. yeah so as I was, I was reflecting on um, the Sunday, you know, I, was, I was thinking that it's, it's really appropriate that this is uh, the Lenten season um, in, in the church calendar, and, and we kick that off with Ash Wednesday, and what happens on Ash Wednesday in a lot of traditions is uh, the pastor or the priest will put ashes on people's forehead in the shape of a cross and say, remember that you are dust and to dust that you, and to dust you will return. And it's a, it's a time, this, this time heading into Easter for us to reflect on our mortality and our, our sinfulness. And, um, I think it's, it's really appropriate that, um, that we're thinking about things like this at this, at this time of the year. Um, you know, we all suffer from the human condition, which the mortality rate for that is a hundred percent. Um, so, so whether it's coronavirus or something else, we're all going to die. Um, and I realize that's kind of depressing, but that's, you know, that's the reality. Um, and uh, that, that tells me that ultimately our hope is not in a vaccine. It's not in the government to solve this. It's not in any of these other things. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He's the one who uh, provided the cure for that on Good Friday and uh, showed the effectiveness of that cure on Easter Sunday when he rose from the dead. So... Uh, that's that's my um, hopeful message for you all is that uh, our, our hope is not in in anything that happens 
through, through science or anything else, our ultimate hope is through Jesus Christ. Uh, he's the one who can save us. That's great. Uh, I don't even know if I need to give my conclusion after that. Um, I was going to say, if I was thinking, if you guys are up for it, I think we'll take like a one-minute break, but I wanted to ha have these guys here for another you know, 10 minutes or so for some Q&A from, from, from everyone. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Mm -hmm.